worship and praise to our great God. And what an incredible act of service for the worship team, for the leadership that's given to us to draw us to heaven week in and week out. But especially this Lord's Day, it was just a beautiful arrangement of worship. And my heart is just filled and overflowing with joy and praise to God because we are saved and we are we are set for heaven because Jesus has risen from the dead. So we're going to read the gospel account this morning from several gospels to again reaffirm that Jesus has risen from the dead. And I want to begin by having us turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. You know, in our culture and society, even apart from scripture, there is an incredible fascination with the resurrection, with the idea that Jesus was buried and then rose again on the third day. I was uh, reading online from an article put out by the Salt Lake Tribune on the Shroud of Turin. And there's a lot of articles and a lot of media about the Shroud of Turin even still today. It's history's most contested religious relic. It's been housed for 500 years in the Turin Cathedral in Italy. And I was told even this morning that people are looking at this Shroud of Turin to connect with Jesus because the Shroud of Turin is a cloth that's, that's supposed to, be, to have been placed over the body of Jesus at his burial to, and that somehow Jesus' image and body was burned onto this cloth and preserving and preserved, preserving for people the holy face of Jesus. And so people somehow are connecting with this supposed image of Jesus Christ. And I was told this morning that there was an article written about a group of people, probably scientists or computer experts, that are trying to capture that image on in a sort of technological way to reproduce it in a three-dimensional image to make a greater connection with this image. And this week is when this image and these, this shroud of Turin is going to go on display where the Archdiocese of Turin has distributed 1.2 million exhibition tickets for people to sign up and walk through and look at this shroud. You know, actually, scientists have connected the Shroud of Turin back to the Middle Ages of the 14th century. And so that's where they're dating this Shroud of Turin as when it was developed and formed by some forger. But people somehow still want a superstitious connection with Jesus Christ through this relic. And this isn't the only version of people trying to connect with the resurrection apart from Scripture. There are all kinds of liberal documentaries that are broadcast every Easter time that will sort of make the resurrection a non-miracle event. One example is the swoon hypothesis or the swoon theory. And that's the idea where, where people are trying to stay historically. The only way that a man could have died on the cross and then be seen to have risen again is that he fell unconscious. And they'll really sort of soup up the drama by saying, look, Luke, the physician, probably gave Jesus drugs and he knocked out on the cross. And then, and then somehow Joseph of Arimathea, who gave Jesus the tomb, he came around and resuscitated Jesus so that he could show up again. It sounds like a nice conspiracy theory novel, doesn't it? Or a spy movie. Anyway, science and superstition, I'm here to tell you this morning, is not enough to save you. 
We believe in the resurrection because the Holy Spirit has documented it for us in the Gospels. And it's very simply put that what we do is we just read the Gospel story and the Spirit of God opens our hearts to believe it. And so we confirm and affirm again and again that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. You probably heard preachers preach uh, the resurrection more arguing for it from a rational or logical deductive reasoning where they'll say, look, you know, I'm going to pit all of the religious leaders of the ages against Jesus and Jesus will stand up as the premier leader of leaders who rose from the dead. They'll say, look, if you go to Buddha's grave or Muhammad's grave or Confucius's grave or Gandhi's grave or Pharaoh's tombs or Hitler or Stalin, if you go there, you'll find their remains. But if you go to the tomb of Jesus, he's not there, he's risen. Kind of as a motivational speech and uh, preaching, people will try to make the case for Jesus in that way. But we don't want to take that too far because I guess if you tried to exhume the remains of different leaders and went to, you know, on an excavation trip to, to try to see if the bones are there, we might come up empty because over time things seem to decay, right? So, so really we don't want to push that too far. Some will also deduce that Jesus rose from the dead in, um, in sort of a conjecturing way. They'll sort of add to the story of the resurrection account to make a case that Jesus rose from the dead. And they'll say, look, you know, no one stole the body of Jesus because the priests and the scribes, had they stolen the body of Jesus, they would have reproduced that body to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Or the apostles and disciples, they were way too frightened and freaked out and scared to, to, to try to take Jesus out of the tomb. So that didn't happen. So the only single explanation that's remaining is that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, I read that this week from a commentator that I read all the time and respect, but I'm just thinking, you know, that's extra biblical. That's, that's beyond the scripture. The scripture documents for us as we read it that Jesus rose from the dead and the scripture is enough. And at baseline, the scripture is not using reasoning or superstition or science to defend the resurrection. The defense of the resurrection is, a, is like a caged lion. All you got to do is let it out. The scripture defends itself in that way, and we are required and demanded to believe in the resurrection, and it comes by faith. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and watch this, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. What's the key? The key to affirming the resurrection is to affirm it by faith, by faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to hear the word of the Lord and again affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ by just listening to the story in all of its clear simplicity. That was the strategy of the Gospels. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written by eyewitnesses. Jesus designed it this way. He lived his ministry in front of them. He did miracles in front of them. He died and was crucified in front of them. And then he rose again in front of them. And so they were witnesses and they wrote the story down so that as we read the story, we can also become witnesses of the resurrection. We can become believers. John, the gospel writer, spelled out his strategy at the beginning of his gospel in John 2.22. He said, Basically, when therefore he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, 
His disciples, John included, his disciples remembered that he had spoken this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What's John saying? He's saying, look, we were disciples with Jesus. And after Jesus rose from the dead, all of what Jesus told us about, when he told us he was going to rise from the dead, connected with what we also believed in the scripture. And when we connected those dots, we believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And indeed they did, and they wrote this story down. John 20, at the conclusion of John's gospel, tells why he wrote it down. He said, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what I'm doing this morning is just echoing John's intent here by unfolding for you the gospel story so that you might believe. If you've never believed that Jesus rose from the dead, believe this morning and believe because you're hearing an eyewitness account that Jesus rose from the dead. The word belief or faith is repeated all through the gospel of John 90 times and it's to promote genuine faith. But I love the way that faith is promoted in these gospel stories because these gospel stories are about Jesus but they're about eyewitnesses who were real people with real sinful problems and sin natures wrestling and struggling out loud to comprehend what was going on around them. Does that sound familiar? I mean, we're just real people in real time, in real experiences, trying to figure out what the Lord is doing in our life and circumstances. That's what the disciples were doing, but they were doing it right in the midst of Jesus as the gospel was unfolding before their eyes. And they're trying to grapple with it and grasp what's going on. And their very struggles and wrestling matches in their minds and conversations is what John and Matthew and Mark and Luke use to promote faith and believing. He wants their struggle to become seed for our hearts so that we would believe and we would enter in to believing this message. The disciples, if you're taking notes, they make three transitions as they move from skeptics to witnesses of the resurrections. That of the resurrection. That's where the disciples were. You will find them as skeptics of the resurrection. Even, even though they heard all of the teaching before Jesus died and rose again, all of the prophecies that Jesus spelled out in detail to them, they still found themselves to be skeptics. Now, they were believers, they were followers of Jesus, but at that point, when they first heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, they were skeptics. And we're going to watch how they they moved from being skeptics to witnesses, to people who were willing to die for Jesus Christ. All right, let's begin in Luke 24. Luke 24, and I want to read through verses 1 through 10 to begin the gospel story specifically surrounding the resurrection. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, "'Why do you seek the living among the dead?' He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day and on the third day rise. 
And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. Now look at verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Stop there. What does it mean that these disciples, who are believers, did not believe the message that the women were telling them? It was an idle tale to them. It was tomfoolery. It was make-believe. This this can't even connect with, with my experience to believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe, though they were believers. They were saved. The Spirit of God had transformed their hearts. They had left everything to follow Christ. But they weren't buying the the women's report. You know, the disciples, as I said, they're different than we are in the sense that they could be believers in this account and not have fully grasped the resurrection yet. They were still trying to figure out the resurrection because it was happening in real time before their eyes, right? But we as believers, we have no choice but to believe in the resurrection from where we stand because the whole gospel has been written for us and it is required that we believe in the resurrection to be saved in the first place. These disciples were already saved and they were figuring out what was happening around them. But ultimately, once these disciples saw the resurrection and believed it and wrote about it, then they too were like us and were looking back at the gospel story in full belief. John 2.22, Jesus was raised and then they remembered what he had taught them and believed the scripture and what Jesus had taught them. They, they connected the dots ultimately and confirmed that indeed Jesus died and rose again. But for us... Looking back at the story, it is our responsibility to indeed believe that Jesus rose from the dead to be saved. At this point in the story, though, we find that they were not tracking. They were skeptical as to whether Jesus indeed rose from the dead. And, you know, that kind of puzzles me a little bit because they they knew that resurrection was possible, right? Elijah in the Old Testament, they would have heard the story about Jesus raising up the widow's son, Uh, They would have heard about Elijah's predecessor, or um, successor rather, Elisha, who raised up the Shunammite's son in 2 Kings 4. The Old Testament predicted that resurrection was going to take place in Psalm 16, that the body would not be abandoned to Sheol, the body would not see corruption, but would be holy. And then they would have remembered and known of Jesus' ministry where he raised the, the son at Nain, the son who was buried and was being brought through um, to burial, rather. He was in a casket and Jesus touched him and raised him up. They would have known the story about Jairus' daughter, who was the daughter of a religious leader in the synagogue who was raised from death. Now, these resurrections were such that people would be raised and then they would die again in their own lifetime. But they were, they were foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus, he spoke of the fact that he was going to raise from the dead in very specific detail. 
So much detail that it's just surprising at first blush to think that these disciples were not connected with what was going on. In Matthew 16, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Very detailed. Think about it. Jerusalem is when this is going to go down. He's going to suffer many things. It's going to be the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and he's going to be killed. And then on the third day, he's going to be raised. That's very specific, Matthew 16, 21. Matthew 17, 9, they were coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, down the mountain. He said, tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's going to happen. Matthew 17, 23 gives us a window into the fact that when Jesus was predicting that he was going to raise from the dead, that the disciples were greatly distressed. The disciples weren't disengaged and kind of going, well, I'm not really connecting with this message, or maybe what Jesus is talking about is kind of metaphorical or picturesque of something else. No, they were, they were distressed by the idea that Jesus was going to die and then rise again. Matthew 20, 19 says, again, very detailed statements about what was going to happen. Jesus said, Uh, that he was going to be delivered to the Gentiles. He was going to be mocked and flogged and crucified and raised on the third day. So again, they should have connected with what was going on. Matthew 26, he was to be raised and then they would connect, reconnect with him in Galilee. Luke 9, that it was going to happen from rejection from the chief priests and scribes. And then John 11 is where Jesus identifies with the resurrection personally and he says what? I am the resurrection and the life. So resurrection was a mega theme throughout Jesus' teaching, and yet the disciples at this point were puzzled. But though they were skeptics, they began to transition to a new phase to being bewildered. Bewildered. This is the second phase of their journey in faith. They're, They're bewildered now. They're puzzled. And that begins with... Luke 24, verse 12. Something clicked in Peter's mind and and in John's mind where they took off running for the tomb. Verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, it might be in your mind enough for Peter to have seen that the tomb was empty and for him to go away marveling. But you need to understand something. Marveling here just means that Jesus, or that Peter was astounded at what he saw. I think that it was the beginning of him beginning to resonate with the idea that Jesus could indeed have risen from the dead. But I don't think Peter at this point was totally convinced. We know just by reading the gospel accounts that Peter actually went away fishing after this time. Probably just wrestling and grappling with what was going on. And Jesus called to him from the beach. And then they connected and he was convinced. John talks about this account in John chapter 20. Turn over to John 20 verses 3 through 8. It says, so Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now we know that John is talking about himself in third person. 
Uh, you know, maybe he used third person so that he could slip in the fact that he outran Peter. I'm not sure. But indeed, he documents it twice that he outran Peter. And I think really the point is that Peter, Peter's personality is on display. Peter is impetuous and he's huffing and puffing behind John. But once he gets to the tomb, he's really tactile and hands-on and he wants to get in there and see what's going on. And John takes a little bit def- different approach. It says that Peter, he went in and looked in and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Or No, this is John. John looked in and he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. John kind of stayed outside for a little bit. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. Now watch these words. And he saw and believed. Now Peter, he went away sort of bewildered, amazed, astonished, still thinking things through. John got it. John got it. He very cautiously, carefully, and contemptively went into the tomb, thought it through, and connected his experience with the scripture. And verse 9 confirms this. John 20, verse 9. It says, John believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. There's a window into John's mind and heart at this point. Basically, John is saying up till that very moment, all of what Jesus had been saying and all that the scripture predicted had not yet registered. He had not yet understood these things. But now in this moment, he believed. He believed. Perhaps John was referencing Psalm 1610, where it's speaking of David, but prophetic of Jesus For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is what happens when we believe in the resurrection. This is what happens. We're reading the scripture and the spirit of God opens our hearts and we connect the dots and we say this indeed is true. Now if you fast forward to Luke 24, Luke 24, 36 Go back to Gospels Luke. I mean, Luke's Gospel, but you're fast-forwarding in the story. Luke chapter 24, verse 36. We find the disciples huddled in a locked room, probably the upper room, and Jesus suddenly appears before them. Now, we know from preceding context that, that Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden And he's also appeared to Simon Peter on the beach that I alluded to before. And he's also appeared to the two on the road of Emmaus. But now he's appearing to the rest of the disciples and he's finding a bewildered crowd. It's a bewildered crowd. They're not not settled as to what's happened. They're just trying to figure it out in a locked room. Probably locked for safety. They don't want to be accused of having stolen the body of Jesus. So they're locked in tight. Makes, makes no never mind to Jesus. Jesus just appears before them. Verse 36. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. They needed some peace. Why? Look at verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Oh my, a ghost is in the room. 
and we're scared to death. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? So Jesus, he's just trying to prove to them and comfort, comfort them that, hey, I am, I am physical here. So physical that my wounds are, are here for you to touch. And is there anything in here to eat? Right? But notice in verse 41 again that they were still bewildered. This crowd of men and women, they were overjoyed with the fact that Jesus was in front of them and they're comprehending that, but their joy was almost a temptation for them to miss the point that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead and he was physically in front of them. It's amazing how our emotions can tempt us to miss the point of what is most important. And that is for them to be eyewitnesses to see, feel, and touch the risen Lord. That the scripture had, had prophesied that this was going to happen, and indeed it happened. The scripture is being fulfilled before their eyes. That's what needed to take place in the hearts of, this, of these disciples. So the disciples were transitioning from being skeptics to being bewildered to ultimately and finally being convinced This is the heart of a Christian. A Christian is one who lands and says, I am convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's when the resurrection, by the way, will change your life. That's what will put you out there with people. That's what will, will, will burn the hunger in your heart to disciple other people. You want to witness what has been witnessed in your heart. You are an eyewitness by the Spirit of God as your spiritual eyes read this account. You enter in with the disciples and you are that eyewitness. And then you want to pass that witness on to other people. That's why it was so important that that the disciples became convinced. Because the resurrection was to forever transform their life, ministry, and mission. Notice who Jesus, though, first shows himself to. I have to kind of roll the tape backwards a little bit and go back to the account where Jesus reveals himself first to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. This is picking up in verse, uh, chapter, uh, hold with me, I got ahead of myself. All right. (laughs) If If you look back to John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18. See, the resurrection is so exciting, I just totally, you know, Kind of threw the notes out for a while. Mark 16, 9 says that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene first on the first day of the week. Interestingly, the Gospels begin to pick right up on the idea that we're going to call Sunday now the first day of the week because this is resurrection day. And Mark 16 gives us a clear insight as to why it's so profound and significant that Jesus revealed himself first to her. You know why he revealed himself to her first? I think it's because he had a deep heart affection for her as her Lord, the one of whom he had cast seven demons out of. That's what Mark 16 says. He had cast seven devils out of her and rescued her. She's a picture of redemption. 
You know, women, by the way, would not have even been considered for a court scene as an eyewitness back in this culture. Their, their witness or their eyewitness accounts would not hold up in court. But Jesus in no way, and the Bible in no way, is chauvinistic. Jesus created this woman, and this, this woman is important to Jesus, and he is revealing himself to her as risen from the dead. John 20, verse 11 begins this account. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. She's still bewildered. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Do you hear how convinced Mary was at that point? that Jesus had risen from the dead. I have seen the Lord. The lights have fully come on. The day has dawned. I understand that Jesus was supposed to rise from the dead, and indeed he has risen. That's the heart of a disciple that is convinced. I've seen the Lord. Back to the upper room. Pick up in verse 27 of John 20. John 20, verse 27. This is where... John's account zeroes in on doubting Thomas in the upper room. Remember, they were in, shut in, in locked locked doors, behind locked doors. Jesus had appeared, and this is the conversation that Thomas is having with Jesus. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve... But believe, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Do you think Thomas was convinced at that point? Do you want a place to argue in scripture for the deity of Christ? Why? You know, I don't know if the the scripture is so definitive about the the deity of Christ. What about Thomas's confession? My Lord and my God. That's who Jesus is. Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is simply saying, look, it took a lot of convincing for you, Thomas, to kind of cross the great divide and be convinced that I am the risen Christ. But there are those who will just hear the testimony of the word of God and they will become convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. Thomas was illumined by the scripture and by the spirit and all disciples are. Luke 24, 44 through 49 gives the account of all of the disciples being convinced that Jesus was risen. Look how Jesus 
brings this about. Verse 44 of Luke 24. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Here it is. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Skip down to verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. Every unbeliever that comes to believe that the resurrection is true undergoes this process where the scripture opens blind eyes to the fact that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. And Jesus appealed to all of the Old Testament. He went through the law, he went through the prophets and the Psalms to say it was all about me and it's culminating in this moment. I have risen from the dead. I have fulfilled the scriptures. And then he opened their minds and they fully became convinced. They were believers, but they became convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. So much so that these Gospel writers wrote their eyewitness accounts of their experience with Jesus so that others would believe. Now, a few, a few questions as we close. Uh, if you inserted yourself into this story, where would you fit? Would you say, look, I, I'm a skeptic of the resurrection at this point. You know, I, I've kind of done some patchwork uh, theology where I kind of cut and paste a little bit as to what I believe. I'm not fully convinced that Jesus um, was born of a virgin or that, that Jesus now, I'm not fully convinced that he's human all the way now. Once he raised from the dead, he was more spiritual and not, he's not fully man. Or when Jesus returns, he just kind of returns in our hearts and he's not bodily going to return. I, that's not important. All of that is false. You have to believe the gospel as it was laid out by eyewitness accounts that Jesus was born of a virgin. Fully God, fully man, lived a perfect and sinless life, obeying the law and fulfilling the law to the nth degree. That he died on an old rugged cross. He was nailed to the cross. The crown of thorns was placed on his head. He was, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was mocked. And he indeed gave his spirit up to the Lord, the Father in heaven, and died and was buried, and three days later, he rose bodily from the dead. These are the main points that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, attest to. And this is the story that opens blind eyes, that moves you from being a skeptic to being kind of bewildered about the Gospel to ultimately being convinced. So are you a skeptic? Are you bewildered? Or are you convinced of the resurrection? As, a, as the Bible puts it, we are accountable to believe in the resurrection. That's my next point. Do you know you're accountable to believe in the resurrection? God's word demands that you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. It's demanded. It's not enough for you to sort of grapple with it in this life and then leave it to be figured out one day after you die. It's too late. The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5. This is the gospel. Death, burial, and resurrection. And we have to believe and embrace all of that to be saved. Superstition, science, and reason 
will not save you. Only embracing the gospel by faith will. Next, has the resurrection transformed your Christian life? Now I'm speaking to you as believers, as Christians. It's easy to think about the fact that Jesus died for our sins and apply that to our hearts because we know our sin, right? We, we know when we're sinning against God and we, we want to meditate upon how Jesus, how his death on the cross atoned for our sins and that's well and good. But don't just meditate on his death. Meditate on Jesus' resurrection. And don't just meditate on Jesus' resurrection at Easter time. Meditate on Jesus' resurrection as a normal pattern of your life. Now, why? Because the scripture tells you to do it. And the scripture connects Christian victory and your Christian walk with the hope of the resurrection. Romans 4.25. Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why do you stand in grace? Why are you free and clear from your sins? Because Jesus bore your sins and the payment that he paid on the cross for you was confirmed and received by the Father. Why do we know that? Because Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't just die and stay dead. He rose victoriously, vindicating his sacrifice and payment on your behalf. That's why you stand in grace. It guarantees your forgiveness. It secondly guarantees you your future. Romans 6, 4 talks about how we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We walk in newness of life now and we're walking into our future where we one day will be glorified. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, And God raised the Lord... And will also raise us up by his power. So again, Jesus raised from the dead and I believe that. And you know what? I also believe I'm going to raise by that same power one day into glory. If you've lost loved ones who are in the Lord, that is such an incredible hope. To understand, if I believe Jesus rose from the dead, then I believe my loved one was risen from the dead. We're, 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 are, we're waiting and anticipating our final state in glory, where we will be given our resurrection bodies fit for worship forever and ever. First Thessalonians 1.10 gives us hope that we will no longer fear judgment and wrath because Jesus was raised from the dead and Jesus is the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Peter 1.3 echoes all of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection. Why are you born again? Why did God transform your heart? So that you can think about the resurrection and find hope in that. How do you get there? If, if the resurrection has kind of cooled off in your heart, go back to these passages and just read the story again. Don't go online and, and you know, dabble with resurrection theories. That's not going to get the spiritual juices flowing in your life again. It's just go back and read the old story from the eyewitnesses who wrote it. They were the ones who were there. They were struggling and grappling through what was going on. And they were struggling out loud so that we can reconnect with that story and be convinced with the disciples and say, Jesus has risen from the dead. 
And that's the hope that we live in. All right, it also guarantees power to live for God. By, by reinvigorating our hope in the resurrection, we also are stating that we have power in our life to live the Christian life. Romans 6, 5 talks about our union with Jesus' death and our union with the resurrection. The verse preceding Romans 6, 5 is 6, 4, where it talks about walking in newness of life. How do we know that we walk in a newness of life? Because when Jesus died spiritually, we died. When Jesus rose spiritually, we rose. And we have that same power, that resurrection power in our life to live the Christian life. Romans 6, 9, death no longer has dominion over Christ. Christ has been raised. Romans 6, 11 immediately picks up and says, so you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. We resonate with Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection. Both are what give us confidence to live the Christian life. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and if he, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Think about it. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead is a part of your daily life. Romans 8.10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Don't forget about the resurrection. Don't just leave the resurrection for springtime. Live in light of the resurrection. Think about the cross, but finish the story that Jesus rose again. Let's be convinced of this. This is what Paul did in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and what? The power of his resurrection. That's what Paul wanted to know, that power in his life. Do you want to know that power? If you've never experienced the power of the resurrection, you should examine your hearts this morning and say, am I convinced Have I moved from skepticism to bewilderment to ultimately being convinced that Jesus died and rose again for my sins? I want you to be convinced of that today, this morning, so that you will have eternal life, that you will believe and have life in his name, as John said in John 20. And if you're not yet living according to the power of the resurrection, I would encourage you to meditate on this gospel and be convinced like the disciples and be witnesses that are radical witnesses for Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we are convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. He has risen. He has risen indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our final dismissal.